0: Thanks, Doug. Well, as I said in first service, it's not only a delight to be with you, but I would like to take that video and this group with me on the road and just, uh, in fact, I, I said to Sam, if he didn't have anything going on next weekend, I'd be glad to take him someplace, but I think he's got plans. This is the product of Lincoln Christian University. This is what we are about. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I can point to uh, your staff that serve here, students like these, that makes my job really easy when it comes to promotion because I don't have to sell our school to anyone, it sells itself through the quality of students and graduates that we have and uh, you as a church have been a partner with us from our very first days. From the very beginning, 70 years ago, First Christian Church in Clinton played a vital role in the establishment and the growth of Lincoln Christian University. You have sent us students. You have faithfully supported us financially. You have allowed your uh, preachers and ministers to teach for us from the very early days. In so many ways, you have been a partner congregation with us. So I'm here today to say thank you to you and we want our relationship with you to be a reciprocal relationship so that you sense that uh, you bless us and we want to be a blessing to you as uh, we together accomplish what God wants us to do. In my um, first service message I simply made an observation that I think whether you are a church or a Christian university or a Christian mission of any kind you have one priority And that priority is to help Jesus accomplish His vision for the world. That's it. That's why we're here, to help Jesus achieve His big dream, His heart's desire. And I wish I could go to a verse of Scripture where it so clearly says, this is Jesus' vision for the world. I can find a couple of statements that describe his mission in Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 9.35. It says that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, preaching the good news of the kingdom, teaching and healing every disease and sickness. That's, that was his mission. But but why, to what end did he do all of that? So I begin to piece it together through a trek through Matthew's gospel. And you could do this as well. But at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Jesus teaches his disciples and us to pray this kind of prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, he teaches parables of the kingdom. He tells his disciples that they are to go proclaim the kingdom. You come to the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 24, verse 14. He pronounces the gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So between praying for the kingdom to come and His will to be done and the gospel of the kingdom being preached throughout all the world, this is it in a sentence. Jesus' vision, what He dreams and desires is to see nothing less than the rule and reign of God come over the heart and life of every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl of every nation and every generation without exception. That's why he came to earth, to see God's rule, God's reign come over the heart and the life of every single person ever born since he came. Now the challenge is for us to figure out how do we do that. How is it that we help him achieve that vision? And to find an answer to that, I simply want us to look this morning at a text of Scripture that comes from one of the Apostle Paul's sermons. It's his message preached in Pisidian Antioch, recorded in the 13th chapter of Acts. It's there in this message that he uses a couple of simple phrases packed with perspective. On his way to making his real point, he makes an observation. He's contrasting Jesus and David. Look at the words from Acts chapter 13, verse 36. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. It's an obvious contrast. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was buried. Jesus was put in a tomb. But his body never saw decay because something different happened to Jesus than what happened to David. For David, after he served God's purpose in his generation, he died. He was buried. His body decayed. And I'm going to get to Paul's point in just a moment But I want to linger for a time on his observations about David, because I think that little phrase, he served God's purpose in his own generation, is perhaps a pretty good phrase that could describe our lives as well. In fact, the older I get, the longer I live, the more convinced I am that that would be a good epitaph to put on a tomb. And if somebody wanted to sum up my life in some way that would be meaningful to me, if at the end of my life they could say of me, he served God's purpose in his own generation, I would be honored. In fact, not long ago, I was really forced to think about that. I opened up the State Journal Register to the obituaries, and I read one there for someone named Donald Green. And it wasn't me, obviously, but it made me think, well, what would they write about me when I'm gone? I think we need to be reminded as a church that our call is always to serve God's purpose among a particular generation in a changing generational scene. For us at Lincoln Christian University, it means we have to give careful attention to navigating a sea of change while standing firmly in the stream of the faithful. That is, we need to figure out like you as a church, how do we as God's people serve God's timeless purpose in a timely way among a temporal generation with eternal significance. That's the job. Not an easy job, but a critical job. So I want to take a few moments and unpack for you what does it mean to serve God's purpose. This word purpose or plan, sometimes translated will, appears 18 times in the New Testament. I'm not going to look at all of them. I'm going to look at three or four of them, just so you can see what God's purpose is like. You'll see, first of all, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, that His purpose is universal. Paul writes, "...He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ." to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ." In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? He's talking about a universal purpose to bring all things in heaven and on earth universally under the lordship, the reign of Jesus Christ. You'll notice in Ephesians chapter 2 that it is a unifying purpose. There, Paul says, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He's talking about bringing into a united family, one new community, Jews and Gentiles, Whatever the divided groups are, generations, nations, ethnic groups, God only sees one family, a family in the family of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, it is God's eternal purpose. It's there where Paul says in Ephesians 3 verse 10, his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's saying in effect that the church is supposed to do more than just get the world's attention. It is supposed to put on edge the rulers and authorities, the principalities and the powers. The very forces of evil are shaken when they see the church accomplishing what God wants done. And then in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, he describes it as an unchanging purpose. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. The Hebrew writer is making the point that God doesn't make oaths very often, but He made an oath because He wanted to declare this is an unchanging purpose. So to serve God's universal, unifying, eternal, unchanging purpose means we're going to join Him in His work of being redemptive and reconciling and restoring to be a transformative church and community to make a difference in His world. Now the reason I want to underscore all of those elements about the purpose of God is simply to remind you that as a church and as a Christian university, we take seriously a message and a mission that will never change. If that ever changes, God will withhold His blessing, He will remove His promise, and we are doomed to fail. We are committed to that unchanging purpose of God that's universal, eternal, and unifying. But what does change in the midst of so much change in our culture? Well obviously, the generations change. I find it interesting that Paul said of David, he served God's purpose in his own generation. You see, each generation is temporal, it is culture-bound, it is ever-changing. How God's purpose is carried out in each generation differs, yet remains the same. Or as I said in my recent inaugural address at Lincoln, a school like ours has to be determined to be just the same as never before. That is a tightrope to walk. We bring students to our campus to live their mission Their mission is individual, it is personal, it is cultural, it is geographical, it is generationally unique, it is their own, and yet the purpose of all of those missions is to accomplish God's eternal, unchanging, universal mission in the world. I am always impressed, every time I reflect upon our history, how far ahead of their time the founders of Lincoln Bible Institute really were. Earl Hargrove, Charles Mills, the two founders, etched the words in our original purpose and policy that the purpose of then Lincoln Bible Institute was to train preachers, Christian teachers, and other Christian workers who would know the Christ and to be able to present the Christ to their generation. But for a few short months prior to that written statement, There was a slightly different version. They changed it quickly. The first version was that Lincoln graduates would be able to present the Christ to this generation. The wisdom of knowing that Lincoln should not be a one-generational school, but that every generation was going to have to be prepared to challenge and speak to their generation is a point of genius. It's obvious to me that God is concerned about the generations and the nations. I find it in such places as Psalm 45, verse 17. It's there the psalmist said, "...I will perpetuate your memory through all generations, therefore the nations will praise you forever." and ever. Do you see the connections? As it gets passed on from generation to generation, it gets spread to nation to nation and to nation. And God's great vision is to see heaven populated with all the nations of the world and the generations of the world. So I'll say it here the same way I said it in first service. God wants to see heaven populated with all kinds of people. He wants it to be populated with some gray-haired people like Lynn Laughlin, and some of us are going to be no-haired people, but he also wants to see heaven populated with spiked-haired people and purple-haired people because he wants heaven populated with people. That's it. That's what matters to him. That's why he cares about the generations and the nations. But the book of Judges dreadfully illustrates what happens when a nation forgets or when a people forgets. There was a time in the book of Judges where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It sounds a bit like our pluralistic culture today where what is right for you may not be right for me. It stems from an absence of an absolute truth with a pluralistic perspective that truth is relative. What may be true for you is not necessarily true for me. And what's different between the early days of Lincoln Bible Institute to today is that this is the generation that is going to have to figure out how to communicate God's message of truth to a culture where what's true for you is not true for me, and my truth is just as good as yours. Wow, what a responsibility. But I want you to notice how a generation can quickly pass from Joshua's faithfulness to Israel's unfaithfulness. It's summed up in that dreadful statement in Judges 2, verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. You see, the real generation gap that exists is not a generation gap of preferences or generational differences. It's obvious. I'm of that generation that still wears a tie. I would look pretty silly up here in my skinny jeans. Okay? There are generational differences. I grew up with different styles of music, but I love the music that emanates from the heart to honor God. The real generation gap is not differences and preferences. The real generation gap happens when one generation fails to pass on the faith faithfully to the next generation. It's what happened in Judges, and it's what could happen with any church in America. You see, it'd be possible for us of the older generation to blame this younger generation and say, well, they just didn't get it. We tried to teach them. They weren't willing to listen. We did everything we could to tell them, but they wouldn't hear. But I think some of the blame has to be owned by one generation for not passing on the faith as carefully and clearly as we should. They fail to do what the psalmist urged in Psalm 145, verse 4. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of all your mighty acts. So let me just fast forward to today. Move from judges to America. The faith generation gap that's growing in America. According to the Pew Research Center, one-third of adults under the age of 30 have no religious affiliation. 32% of adults under the age of 30 have no religious affiliation compared to just 1 in 10 who are 65 or older so it goes from 32% under the age of 30 to 9% of age 65 and older young adults today are also much more likely to be unaffiliated than previous generations were at a similar stage in their lives and so it has risen it has reached a point where James Emery White Um, has written a book on the rising of the nuns, not the N-U-Ns who wear the black habits, the Catholic nuns, but the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. Those who check a box, religious affiliation, none. It's over 30% among those under age 30. This week, Pew Research just released another bit of research that in the last seven years, think of how quickly this has happened, in the last seven years in America, the number of people, the percent of people professing to be Christians has dropped from 78% to just over 70%. That's the trend. That's where it's headed. So researcher David Kinneman in his book, You Lost Me, reveals this, that more than 60% of young people who went to church as teens drop out after high school. I had the privilege this morning, as a part of this LCU day, to speak to the graduating seniors at a brunch in their honor. And they were served there by the junior hires and a great uh, meal prepared for your seniors. And I told them these simple statistics think of it this way if you have three children, three young people in your family, in your church, they grow up in church. They go off to university after high school or off to the workforce after high school. One in three will stay faithful to their faith. One will drop away from their faith for a short time and then come back. And one will drop away from the faith and never return. Those are the statistics. Now, I think because of the foundation provided here in homes and in this church, the statistics are better than that. I hope so. I pray so. But here's the reality of what I'm trying to say. I've said it elsewhere. I need to say it here. This church, like every church in America, is just one generation away from closing its doors if you don't continue to invest in children's ministry and youth ministry and mentoring and developing and discipling the next generation. And I've said it of first Christian church youth that come to Lincoln Christian University, I wish you could clone them and send us more of them. We would welcome them because of the quality of youth you have here. But here's the harsh reality. If today's a typical Sunday in America, today 70 churches will close their doors for the very last time. 3,500 churches a year close their doors. 70 churches. People gathering to hear their last sermon, sing their last songs together, pray their last prayers together, weep as they walk out of the door for the last time, lock up their building, and tomorrow the building will be put on the real estate market. Church, you have to invest in the future. Because God's purpose is to reach all the nations and all the generations with His unchanging truth That includes this millennial generation, not only the single largest, but I think one that is packed with the greatest potential. They're not limited by geographical uh, Midwestern mindsets. There are more of them in our backyard right now than at any other time in our history. But the reality is they defy geographical limitations This is a generation that is proficient in technologies. (laughs) They can speak the language of technology. They are relentlessly relational, and yet it is ironic that this is a generation that sits in front of the glow of a computer monitor, Googling their questions, looking for their answers, and guess what? The church has the ultimate answers. We just have to figure out how to communicate them in such a way that will connect with their hearts, their desires, and their dreams. So how do we serve God's purpose in our own generation? By doing what Paul did. Two verses or two texts remind me of Paul's example. The first, he sums up his whole life of servant leadership in Acts chapter 20 when he's addressing the Ephesian elders, and he says this, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. So therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. That's it. With tears, night and day, Paul proclaimed the whole will of God. And then in the text we read from earlier, Acts chapter 13, what's he doing there? He's proclaiming good news. He's announcing gospel. In fact, this is his whole purpose in that message. It's not to talk just about God's purpose and serving that purpose in David's generation. It's bigger than that. It's multi-generational. He says, we tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers, past generation. He has fulfilled for us, their children, current generation, by raising up Jesus. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. It's from generation to generation to generation to be sure that we stay on course with what really matters. How do we do that in a sea of change? I'm reminded of the words that have been attributed to Thomas Jefferson. He's alleged to have said, in matters of style, swim with the current, but in matters of principle, stand like a rock. I would tweak it a bit for this 21st century. Yeah, in matters of style, we can swim with the currents, but in matters of principle, we're going to have to stand on the rock. That rock is Jesus. He's the cornerstone that will never change. You see, the gospel is our anchor. The gospel is our constant. The gospel is the one thing that bridges the gulf across the nations and it closes the gap between the generations. It is what every nation needs. It is what every generation needs. And it has to be communicated in their language. That's the challenge. That's why Gabe Lyons, in his book, The Next Christians, How a New Generation is Restoring the Faith, notes this priority for us who are Christians. He says, the first thing for the Christian is to recover the gospel, to relearn and fall in love again with that historic, beautiful, redemptive, faithful, demanding reconciling, all-powerful, restorative, atoning, grace-abounding, soul-quenching, spiritually fulfilling good news of God's love. And I have to tell you, this generation gets it better than my generation did. My generation truncated the gospel into making it something like a get-out-of-hell-free card that can get you into heaven, when in reality the gospel is all about bringing the kingdom of God into the cultures of the world to change society and to change our world. That's why at Lincoln we are committed to being a transformational community of global difference makers. That's important. You see what God said through Habakkuk and the Apostle Paul, he's saying today he's still at work. He's still on mission. Paul quoted from Habakkuk in that 13th chapter of sermon by saying, Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. I'm convinced this generation is going to do that. I am absolutely convinced they are going to do something so dramatic that it will cause the world Sit on edge. So my prayer is that we'll see Christ's world as he sees it, so that we can feel about it as he feels about it. And then that somehow all of us will figure out how to use every media, every means available. And I would say to the younger generation, especially social media, you will become the masters of social media. Figure out how to gossip the gospel through all of the means of social media. How do you tell the good news? How do you share the story? How do you present to a watching world what we have to offer? It's the cure available and it can be spread contagiously through social media. I recently said to our faculty and staff, they've heard me say it on more, more than one occasion now, there's only one reason why Lincoln Christian University and schools like us Need more students. It's not to fill our dorms, it's not to balance our budgets, it's not to improve our financial position. The only reason that we're praying for more students is because the kingdom of God needs more workers. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. How plentiful? There are still 6,900 unreached people groups in the world. That represents about three billion people. There are still 1,967 languages that have no scripture translated into them, not a single verse, and 339 of those people groups are in China. That's why we have a China Institute, and we have 30 students from China studying on our campus to go back to their land. With the message of Jesus. So, my challenge to you as a church is to join us in praying to the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers into the harvest field. Christ is calling us to the task, it's a big task. He wants to see His reign and rule come over the heart and life of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl of every nation and every generation. So, pray for workers to join the 200 that we graduated yesterday as they join the ranks of over 16,000 Lincoln leaders that have settled in every state and have served in 167 different countries of the world. That's what you're helping us do. Thank you. Yet ours is an unfinished task. It's an unfulfilled mission. It's an unprecedented opportunity. But the good news is that ours is an awesome God. And I want to leave you with these words of blessing from the Apostle Paul who said this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.